when when I saw Scream, I, I wasn't really a big slasher fan. I liked spooky ghost movies. I liked Hitchcock movies, but I wasn't really a slasher fan. And then I saw Scream and was like, I've never seen anything like this. Hi, I'm Abby, and welcome to Criminal Types, where we dig into the real world cases, research, and obsessions that keep your favorite crime writers up at night. Hi, Criminal Types. I'm your host, Abby, and welcome to this week's episode. This week's episode is a very special one for me. Today, we're speaking with an author who went from being a writer I got to know at my first job in publishing to one of my all-time favorite authors and good friends. Today, we're sitting down with New York Times bestselling author Riley Sager to discuss his career and his very twisty new psychological thriller, The House Across the Lake. So, Abby, you and Riley are actual friends, not just you interviewed him and you guys had a good time and that's it. You're real-life personal buddies. Riley and I are, in fact, real-world friends, and this was a really cool kind of progression for me because I remember, so I was a publicity assistant at Dutton, which is Riley's publisher within Penguin Random House, and I read his book, Final Girls. Final Girls was published by Dutton when I was working there, and I remember reading that book and thinking, if I could ever meet this author, I just know we would hit it off. There was just something about that book where I felt like it was so perfectly, I don't know, attuned to the things that I love, the things that I get excited about. And then, lo and behold, I did meet Riley through work first, and I ended up leaving that job, moving on to a different job within Penguin Random House, but Riley and I kind of kept in touch. I followed his career as a fan, but he and I would also just chat over social media, and an actual, legitimate, real-world friendship developed and grew from that, and it has resulted in some very fun memories. We've had many an adventure in our day, and um, yeah, it all, honestly— it's all thanks to slasher movies, really. <laughs> really? So, yeah, what are what are some of the interests that both of you share that, that you uh, have this friendship hang on? It really honestly did all start from our mutual love for the slasher genre. Of course, Final Girls, Riley's first book, is obviously, as, you know, the slasher movie fans among us will immediately recognize it is an homage to the leading ladies of slasher films. Riley and I both happen to be obsessed with those. So that was kind of the first the first thing that we hit it off on. Then we discovered that we're both huge Taylor Swift fans, which was another kind of instant bonding moment for us. Um, we also discovered we both love a good gin and tonic. So that's kind of the makings of a great friendship right there, I think. You know, watch a scary movie, drink a gin and tonic and listen to Taylor Swift while you dissect it. Yeah, that's that's a great <laughs> night. Um, Abby, are you going to be going to any of the Taylor Swift concerts this summer? I am unfortunately not going to the Eras tour. I really, really wish that I were. And I am also wildly jealous because Riley is going not once, but twice. In fact, he's already been once at the time that we're recording this. And I have been looking at all his photos from the tour and it looks absolutely incredible. <laughs> wow. It's it's great to know that you could be a suspense thriller author and come up with all of these you know, dark scenarios, but you could also be a Swifty. You 100% can. And Riley's books are proof of exactly that. In fact, don't quote me on this, but I'm like 99% sure that the plot for his new book, The House Across the Lake, is very much inspired by um, the Taylor Swift song, No Body, No Crime, which folks who are familiar with it will know is about, you know, there's a line like, I think he did it, but I just can't prove it, is I think the line from the song. And that is kind of the plot of Riley's new book, The House Across the Lake. Oh, and then when the movie of that book gets made, 
that has to be the song in the trailer. I mean, it has to be. How do we get Taylor Swift on board for that? I'm sure Riley is all over that already. I know it's his dream to get one of his books in the hands of Miss Swift. So Taylor, if you happen to be listening, I have the perfect book for you. I'm sure she's listening. (laughs) Obviously. She checks out all the new recommended podcasts as soon as they drop. I'm sure she does. (laughs) So... Abby, I think it's that time. It's our listeners have been waiting for it. They, this is the most popular thing in America right now. Stump the Abby. So this is where listeners ask for book recommendations that are very specific to what they want. And then you have to find that book that fits perfectly. So, I'm ready. Let's go. So a listener asked for, uh, end quote, looking for a lesser known thriller with a bonkers twist or ending, something all caps, truly, fully shocking. So this can't just be your run-of-the-mill twist. They want, they said they want something bonkers. All right, I'm ready. Well, first of all, I'm not just saying this because of this episode, but if you haven't read Riley's book, The House Across the Lake, it does have a bonkers twist. So I'm just flagging that for you right now. But Oh, I have so many recommendations, but I think I'm going to recommend to you the book that has my favorite plot twist of all time. And that I know is a bold claim, but for me, it's true. Nothing can hold a candle to this plot twist. The book is called I Let You Go by Claire McIntosh. I almost don't even want to tell you what this book is about because I think this is one of those stories where the less you know going into it, the better. It's a psychological thriller. And Oh, I don't even want to say too much about the plot. Go into this book not knowing anything. Just trust me on it. It has the kind of plot twist where you are going to go back and reread the page that came before and then read the twist. And you're going to go back and reread the page before and then read the twist and your mind will be blown. And it's one of those perfect twists where all the clues were right there. It was, you know, it's all so obvious once you know what the twist is. But up until you know what the twist is, you would truly never see it coming. So I don't know. Should I, should I say more about the plot? I think I think you've you've enticed them enough with the with the twist. Okay, because the, the I, looming I, twist. The twist is so good that I feel like seriously, the less you know, the better. So that's rec- can I give another recommendation? Sure, too? of course. All right. So my second plot twist recommendation: if you want something that is off the walls, truly an off the walls twist, um, you have to check out Daisy Darker by Alice Feeney. It's basically her nod to Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. It's kind of about this family gathering on this small tidal island. It's their grandmother's 80th birthday. Um, But then, of course, you know, when the tide comes in, they're cut off from the rest of the world. And then people start to die. And it sounds like a plot that you might have heard before, but I promise what she does with this story is nothing you will ever see coming. Abby, you're obviously a veteran of reading this genre. How good are you at guessing the twist? Is that something you try and do? Do you try to not even do that? And and what what is your success rate for guessing the twist? <laughs> you know, people ask me all the time, don't you get bored of reading crime fiction? And I the, the honest answer is no, never. And I think that's because I never try to solve the mystery. I never try to predict the twist. I am completely along for the ride. I want to be surprised. I want to be shocked. And I feel like I'm just along to see, you know, what journey the author wants to take me on. So um, my success rate is zero. I never predict twists and I am perfectly happy that way. Honestly, I'd rather be that way. Like I love the experience of just being totally shocked, totally surprised. And, you know, I think there is a real art to pulling off a great twist. And like I said, that book, I Let You Go by Claire McIntosh, the way she pulls off that twist and the way she has expertly hidden those clues. So you'll never even, you'll never pick up on them, you know, until you've read the twist, but you can go back then and see 
how she has left that trail of breadcrumbs for you. That is a masterful twist. And I, I never try to predict it. I like to be surprised. A 0% success rate. 0%. That's, that's impressive in its own way. 0% and proud of it, I will say. <laughs> well, I could see why uh, the authors love you. You know, that's the, you're the perfect reader, a 0% guessing twist success rate. And I can see why someone like Riley's is, is loved uh, loved befriending you. <laughs> well, it's been absolutely my pleasure to get to befriend Riley. He, you know, he and I have so much in common and he is such a fantastic writer. I pick up one of his books and I just know I'm in for an incredible journey. And that is exactly what he has in store for readers in his new book, The House Across the Lake. Hi, Riley. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. I am great. How are you? I'm doing well. I am so excited to get to talk with you. We have done so many fun conversations together over the past few years, and I'm so excited about this one because today we're going to really get to dive into who you are, your backstory, what inspires you and excites you in the world of thrillers. So I thought maybe to start, we could kind of go all the way back before you were a crime writer, maybe before the idea of even writing crime fiction yourself had ever popped into your head. What do you credit with kind of first introducing you to the world of mystery and suspense? That's a really good question. I was always interested in dark, creepy things. And so when I was a kid on the wonderful world of Disney, every Halloween, they would have a clip show of like the scariest moments from like Disney cartoons. And one of them was always The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And the big scary chase through the woods and the very end where the headless horseman throws like the flaming jack-o'-lantern through like the covered bridge at Ichabod Crane. And it comes right toward the camera. Like, I've been obsessed with that probably since I've been like five. And so I credit that a lot. Um, but book-wise... Amazing. Yeah, and it just, it's still, because I just watched it like two weeks ago. Um, but... Ten Little Indians or And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie was probably like the really biggie in terms of books. My sister had to read it for class, which how cool is that? That's what class was that? That's incredible. Just, like, and back then, that was like, I guess, like English class reading. And I was like, really? And so I, I said, what are you reading? She's like, oh, these, you know, these 10 people are on an island and they get killed off one by one. I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't know books like that existed. And so I said, like, can I read it when you're done? So I was reading like her school reading. And I think I was probably 12. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. I did not know books like this existed. That's amazing. And it's so interesting because I think Agatha Christie is kind of the gateway for so many of us. You know, I I definitely kind of credit Nancy Drew for sparking my love of this world. But Agatha Christie was right next in line once I was old enough to read her books. And and Then There Were None is just so brilliant. It's one of those stories I think you can read over and over and never get sick of it, you know? I'm assuming this was not like every school district at this time or every... But around like sixth, seventh grade, for some reason, it was really cool among all my friends to be reading Agatha Christie. You sound like you had amazing friends. That's incredible. It, it was just, it was like really trendy. It was like, like, you know, like what's going on with TikTok today and like Colleen Hoover, like in my school, school it was like Agatha Christie. We need to bring that back. That's amazing. And people were like, so, oh, have you read, um, you know, Murder on the Orient Express yet? No, I'll get on that. And it just, what a weird thing that was. 
Were you kind of thinking back then that you would ever end up writing mysteries yourself? I thought it might be neat to try. I I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know if it was possible to do it. Um, But I always enjoyed writing and coming up with stories and creating things. And it was more a case of, this might be neat. Yeah. But it seemed as far away as like, you know, going to the moon. So when was that moment that you kind of decided you were actually going to going to give it a real shot? Very tail end of college. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really showing my age here. It was <laughs> it was summer of 1997 and I was right between like college and like getting a full-time job as a, in you know, in journalism and I was like I'm going to write a novel. And I finished it. It took me, oh my goodness, four years, wow. five years to finish it. And oh, it was terrible. I'm sure. I'm sure it was <laughs> awful. It was like it was. I, I won't even go into plot details, but it was. It, oh, you go into plot details. You have to tell us. No, it, it was. It was very um, millennium focused. Where like oh. It was going to be like it began on on New Year's Eve and in 1999 going into 2000. And it was kind of like the omen ish where like this guy, he he's a widower or you know he's divorced. His child died and he discovers like on the side of the road, like this child wandering around and decides to like take this child under his wing and through all these circumstances, it turns out the child is the Antichrist who's trying oh to like destroy my the world. And, it just, and it was like 500 pages long. You know how much I love The Omen. You were the one who introduced me to The Omen and you know what a fan I am. I think you need to revisit this book idea. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, it sounds like even back then, it sounds like horror and horror movies were kind of influencing you. I mean, tell us a little bit about your kind of personal journey falling in love with the horror movie genre, because I think anyone who's read your books knows what a fan you are. You were a film major in college. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was, was that kind of it was a great major. It was OK, watch a movie and then write a paper about it and then talk about it. But it prepares you for nothing. Not, Except a career as Riley Sager, evidently. <laughs> well, yeah, because there was there was literally there was one class and it was the most valuable class it was like going to college was worth it for me for that one single class and it was um film and literature and Ooh. i thought it was going to be we read the book and then we watch the movie version and talk about the differences and it wasn't at all it was about story and narrative and how particular stories are told and why they're told this way and why is the narrator this person and why was this dead and it and we studied it in depth from both film and books and short stories wow and so it really taught me so much about like how to tell a story and why you should make certain choices for like i i think of about like you know with the house across the lake and it's sort of before and after structure yeah I wouldn't have done that without taking this class wow that's so interesting yeah it just it was it opened my eyes into like oh this is how people tell stories 
And I still like look back and use stuff I learned from there today. That's amazing. And when you look at kind of your body of work, I'm going to say, as Riley Sager, do you feel like there's a particular maybe era or style of film that has most influenced your own writing? Hitchcock. Definitely. Definitely. Definitely (laughs) Alfred Hitchcock. He had this just great run from like 1940 until 1963. So like from, from Rebecca to the birds, where like he pretty much could not fail. Yeah. Like it just, it's this amazing track record and they still hold up today. Like, you know, you know, my love of rear window. Absolutely. And, and so it's, he is still influential and I would love to eventually tackle sort of the quintessential Hitchcock fifties kind of glamour and urbane and witty and suspenseful. Yeah. That's a, that's a goal of mine for the future. That's amazing. And I, I mean, I owe you a debt of gratitude because you were the one who first had me watch Rear Window. You were kind of my introduction to Hitchcock. So I feel like I am very indebted to you. And I was curious to know, you know, as someone who does know Hitchcock's work so well, what do you think it is that has given Rear Window in particular, but also just Hitchcock's body of work, um, its staying power? You know, why, what do you think allows it to continue to influence film today, but also thrillers today? Well, one, he really had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like he was focusing on these horrible crimes and these horrible people. But a lot of times it was done with like a little bit of a wink and a nudge. Like, okay, don't take this too seriously. Yeah. And so when he does get serious, like in Psycho or in Vertigo, it's really effective. But also he knows how to give the right amount, just the perfect amount of information to create suspense. And I think so many thriller writers are in his debt Yeah, where we know how to, I, like I'm trying to think of an example and I'm thinking of like so many examples of a book where like the writer does just gives you a little kiss of information that's so tantalizing at the beginning Mm -hmm. and you have to wait until you get to the end and find okay what is going on here and Hitchcock was a pro at that absolutely and you know this this makes me think of the house across the lake I feel like you do that so beautifully at the start of that book and I mean your new book I do feel like we have to have a moment for the new book because it is so intentionally written into that kind of rear window inspired thriller category, but in a way where you're setting the reader up to upend everything. And I mean, I was just curious if you could speak a little bit to, you know, what the experience was like for you writing a thriller that does, um, I don't know, that is such a nod to Hitchcock's work. Yeah. When I, when I came up with the idea for the house across the lake and the original thing that popped into my head was rear window on a lake. Mm -hmm. But I also knew the challenges of that because Rear Window is so influential and there have been so many books in the past decade that's kind of done the same Rear Window-esque thing and they've done it really well and to much acclaim and much popularity. And so I knew, okay, if I'm going to tackle this, I need to bring something completely new to the table. What is that going to be? And... Yeah, obviously we can't spoil it, but it's... No, definitely not. (laughs) It's new. 
<laughs> it is new and it's amazing. I loved it so much. And I mean, I think we also have to have a moment for um, the Netflix miniseries. I would love to know your thoughts on it. Um, the woman in the house across, wait, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Did I get that right? I, did you watch it? I think so. What, I, do you, what did you think of it? I watched it and I loved it. <laughs> especially because like one of the books she was reading was the woman across the lake. Yes. And this yes. was like, this was months before the house across the lake came out. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is like, <laughs> and I, I wanted the house across the lake to have a similar vibe, like not quite as broad as that Netflix show was, but to just come up to the edge of parody almost where I just, I threw in every trope I could think of regarding these types of rear window-esque stories. And I'm just like, okay, I'm going to give the reader this and this and this, and she's going to be drinking a lot and there's going to be a hot neighbor and it's going to be like, <laughs> and then pull the rug out from them and just upend the entire thing. And so when that the Netflix show came on, I was like, oh my, is this, did they beat me to the punch here? <laughs> and no, this was, so broad, but so fun. And you could tell it was from a place of love. Yeah, that, definitely. That the creators love these stories. And it's such a fun anecdote. Ruth Ware was emailing me about something unrelated. And at the end of the email, she said, by the way, have you seen that Netflix show? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we should be, I forget the way she phrased it. She's like, I don't know if we should be flattered or insulted. And I'm like, flattered. We need to be Definitely flattered. Definitely flattered. Absolutely. <laughs> That's incredible. And I mean, I think we can't talk about movies and Riley Sager without talking about slasher films. Obviously, you know, your first kind of your breakout book, Final Girls, right there in the title is clearly an homage to slasher films and to the leading ladies of that kind of film genre, which you and I both share a mutual love of the slasher film. And I was curious if you could just kind of share with us a little bit about, you know, what brought you to the moment in your life where writing a book about the survival of a, you know, massacre was the thing you needed to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So this is, <laughs> um, yeah, I love one. My favorite final girl is Sydney Prescott. And perfect. I was going to ask that question yeah, next. <laughs> when, when I saw Scream, I, I wasn't really a big slasher fan up until I saw Scream. I liked spooky ghost movies. I liked Hitchcock movies but I wasn't really a slasher fan. And then I saw Scream and was like, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a character like her. Yeah. She was so strong yet so vulnerable. And you just wanted to like give her a hug and a helping Absolutely. hand. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, knowing that she could kick your ass. And so <laughs> it just, it was, I loved her so much. And um, yeah. So Final Girls, it was, we're going on, it was 2014, fall of 2014. And so I had been laid off from my newspaper job. I had been kind of dropped by my publisher from books that I was writing under my real name. And I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I'm like, what am I going to yeah. do? Like, I can't get a job. I have no publisher. I'm just sitting here. It's Halloween. It was Halloween afternoon. And I was baking a pumpkin cake, like not pumpkin flavored, but like 
a round cake that I was then going to decorate like a pumpkin. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> I was doing a lot of baking because I had nothing else to do. Yeah. And I was watching just Halloween on Halloween mm-hmm. afternoon, baking a cake. And it hit me where I'm like, okay, so what would it be like for Lori Strode like 10 years from now? Yeah. And I know that Halloween H2O tried to answer that question. Does attempt an answer. Yeah. <laughs> but I I like that idea of like, okay, so these movies have a sort of happy ending. The psycho killer is vanquished until the sequel. And the final girl lives, but all her friends are dead. She's traumatized. Where does she go from here? Where does she end up a decade from now? Yeah. And I just wanted to explore that. And so I came up with the idea rather quickly. I sketched a one-page outline, sent it to my agent who just went crazy for it. She said, I know editors who would like to read this right now. So just write it, write it, write it. And so I did. I wrote it in like nine weeks was the first draft. Wow. Nine weeks. That's incredible. I was obsessed. Like it was truly, this will never happen again. (laughs) Where I I just, I, it was like this compulsive behavior where I couldn't stop working on the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it was desperation because I knew like, I'm like this, I have nothing else going on in my life except this book. And this is going to be my last shot at a writing career. And so let's just go for it. And it that's it happened. It's incredible. And it has worked so beautifully for you. And I'm curious, I mean, obviously Final Girls had kind of a direct inspiration in terms of, you know, thinking about characters like Laurie Strode or Sidney Prescott. Have subsequent books of yours had that kind of same um, direct horror movie tie-in or inspiration, you know, as you've been kind of creating the concept for those books? I don't think quite as much of that. Like my my, yeah. my protagonists do sometimes I give them like little traits, you know, like there is a lot of Rosemary Woodhouse in Jewels from Lock Every Door. (laughs) Um, You know, Casey in The House Across the Lake was, my jumping off point for that was Carrie Fisher. So a real life person. Oh, wow. And yeah, I really liked her sardonic sense of humor. And I just wanted to kind of channel a little bit of Carrie Fisher's spirit in the character of Casey. Oh, I love that. But it, it really, not so much anymore. Like that yeah. one was specifically tried with Final Girls. I was like, here's the trope. And I'm really going to try to follow it and have a character mm-hmm. that is like a quintessential Final Girl. And then show how it messed her up a decade later. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny you mentioned the protagonist because I think that there are so many of us readers for whom the Riley Sager protagonist is such a thing that we just come back to over and over again. Do you feel like there are universal qualities or kind of key ingredients that make for a Riley Sager protagonist? They all really have messed up pasts and and either and it's and I this is completely unintentional, but like either dead or neglectful parents. What are you? What do your parents think about that? <laughs> I haven't actually gotten into it with them. I should like call them and be like, "You're not like the people in my book." Just <laughs> I want you to know that, like, you're not like the parents of my books. No nope. disclaimer, not based on real yes, life. Yes, it's not. My parents are wonderful, but I think it's like there's a whole joke with like Disney movies where you know there are no mothers, and Disney movies are like the parents are usually dead, and it's. 
there's a reason for that is like to just sort of get rid of a support system. Yeah. And so that's why I, I do it in my books is I think it would be a lot easier for these characters if they could just say, hey, mom, dad, I'm, I'm coming to stay with you for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. or could I borrow some money or it's something and right. they do not have the support system. And so it makes their predicament a little bit more precarious and it ups the stakes for them to have no parental support system or guidance with you. You have to just go off on your own and hope for the best. Yeah. When you're writing a book, do you feel like the character kind of comes to you first or are you sort of creating a character that fits into a story you're already working on? It's it's story first. Mm-hmm. I usually come up with the, in Hollywood, they call it the elevator pitch, mm-hmm. where if you ever were in an elevator with Steven Spielberg, have a sentence describing your project that might impress him. And like, so rear window on a lake is, is one of them. Yeah. And so it's, it's usually this really brief elevator pitch. And then I think of who is the best type of person to populate this mm. story. And so for the house across the lake, like, okay, we have, it's rear window on a lake. Who's going to be the voyeur, so to speak. And I, I liked the idea of having an actress who is escaping some bad publicity and is kind of banished to the family's lake house to, yeah. to stay out of the public eye and get her act together. And her stumbling upon like what might be this very nefarious situation. And I liked having an actress be the person to do this because it sort of turns the tables. She is an actress. She's well-known. People have seen her in movies. People see her on stage. Her job is to be watched. And so to have her now be the one watching, I thought was a really fun twist. Yeah, that's a brilliant kind of role reversal. I really love that aspect of the book. And I think I remember you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I remember you saying at one point that when you're watching a movie, like the actress, the leading lady of the film is something that does tend to like maybe stick with you most of all sometimes after the fact. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of actresses. And yeah. there's just... Because I love movies and I love movie stars, like old school movie stars, It seems to me like right now there's a weird imbalance where I don't think there are a lot of charismatic movie star men right now. Mm. Like I think it's Mm -hmm. we're in a transitional period. But Mm -hmm. on the women's side, crazy charisma. Like you you look at people like just, you know, they're the old standbys. There's there's Kate Blanchett and you know Sandra Bullock and obviously like Meryl Streep, and then there's you know, the younger generation, Charlize Theron and Emma Stone, and then like the new generation coming up, like Florence Pugh. I has, love her so she much. Has charisma she's incredible. To she's so good. That is, yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. And when you're, when you're writing your characters, do you ever picture, you know, any of these actresses I do. as your character? Oh, I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I get the question a lot, but like, who would you cast? Like in the movie, yeah. it's like, I can't say because maybe it will actually happen one day. (laughs) Fingers crossed, knock on wood, all of the above. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
So once you have kind of that initial concept in mind for a book, you know, what does the next step look like for you? Talk, tell us a little bit about your writing process. Are you someone who is kind of creating a detailed outline? Do you write character cards? How does the actual technical process of putting together a book work for you? Yeah, first, I once I come up with who's going to be the main character, then it is just, I give myself the time and space to just think and imagine. And that is my favorite part of the job when it's Mm. sit with a cup of coffee and just think (laughs) all day (laughs) stage of writing. That's the best part. That's the best stage. (laughs) And just really kind of think about what are, what could I do here? What's the potential with the plot? What kind of twist could I come up with? What kind of neat scenes could I come up with? And then I just, after doing some thinking and brainstorming and just letting the whole idea settle into me, then I do outline. And I go from start to finish, like just really just chapter by chapter. You know, I don't get too detailed, but if I know something has to happen in that chapter, I will say like, okay, chapter five, we must introduce this person. And then chapter six, we have to do this. And even to the point where, okay, on page 100, this has to occur. Wow. Then I just start writing and I try to build up to it. Like I use a program called Pacemaker, which is wonderful because you can just set, okay, here's the word count. Here's the amount of time you have to do it. And then it will tell you how many words you have to write a day. Oh, wow. That's really nice. To meet that, yeah, to, to meet that deadline. And so I like to start slow where it's, it gets ridiculous where in the, like the first week of writing a book, it's like, you must write seven words today. <laughs> and, <laughs> and obviously you write more, but it is nice to start slow and then sort of let the, the boulder rolling down the hill analogy happen. Yeah. Like just, it just builds and builds and builds and you write more and more and more and faster. And then over a period of a few months, the book is done. But things always change. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not a stickler to I'm staying with that outline. So I am willing to bend a little bit and go with the flow. And a lot yeah. of times a new twist appears like halfway during the writing or a new way of saying something or telling a new way of structure. Yeah. And so I just kind of follow that until I get a finished book. And then there's the usual revising and making it better and then editor notes and all that kind of stuff. You mentioned twists. And I mean, I think as a reader, I feel like there can be a lot of pressure these days for, you know, any and any and every psychological thriller to have a quote unquote mind blowing twist. As a writer, do you feel that pressure yourself when you're writing? Absolutely. Yes. Mm. It's very difficult because one right now, the genre is on fire. Like Mm -hmm. there are so many people writing at the top of their game and readers are, you know, they're savvy and they read these people. So like, I I know that like my readers read all the other people as well and that they just, they want a great story well-told with complex characters and that twist. And you can't cheat them with the twist. No, it has to be that fair play kind of twist. You have to play fair, but you still have to surprise. And that's a very tricky balance to strike of 
laying out enough breadcrumbs so it's not completely unfair and blindsiding the readers but also it has to be surprising you want the reader to be like oh my gosh i can i did not see that coming and then if they go back and read the book they'll be able to pinpoint oh i should have seen that coming Yes, that is like the most satisfying kind of reading experience. How do you ensure that that is the kind of experience that readers have? Do you have any strategies in place? It's, I don't really, it's really difficult. Like, because I know what the twist is as I'm writing it. Yeah. Every time I write a clue or a hint or even a red herring, I just, I think that everyone's going to know what I'm up to. Yeah. (laughs) Because it just, it feels so strange. And so like every clue I place just feels like this neon red arrow, like just going clue, clue, clue. This is the twist. And I know it's like, just, it's me that only sees this coming, but I don't really know until someone else reads it. And so a very good friend of mine, I give her everything She's like one of the first people to see everything I write and she will text me as she's reading it, like what she's thinking is going on and her reaction to things. Um, What was her reaction to the twist in the house across the lake? (laughs) (laughs) Because that is one of my favorite twists I've ever read. (laughs) Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, I don't know about that, actually. That's a really good question. Um, I'm going to say maybe not. Uh, No, let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll censor myself. But literally, the text was all caps and multiple explanation points what the actual bleep is going on right now. (laughs) She is all of us when we read that incredible twist. And that's when I knew that I got it right. When I, when I saw her reaction, I'm like, yes, I have succeeded. (laughs) But it's so helpful to her because she will say like, right now, I think it's this person. And right now I think she's lying and he's doing this. Yeah. And then right now it's, and then she'll go back and be like, okay, boy, I was wrong about that. Okay. And it's it's such great input to have like real-time reaction from a reader who Yeah, that has to be invaluable. Yeah, and I, I don't tell her anything about the plot. So she goes in blind. Wow. I don't say this is wow. the book about this or this is this character. She just like, here's the next book. Read it when you can. And oh my gosh, I am insanely jealous of this woman. I hope she knows how lucky she is to have this role. This is amazing. And I I, I hope that every writer has a reader like that because it is yeah. it is so valuable to get like this real-time input and she'll yeah. tell me like there have been times when she said okay it's this mm-hmm. and I'm, and she's right like oh, yeah. oh crap now I have to completely redo it <laughs> so it's, yeah yeah but better that's amazing late than you know learn about that now than when you know thousands of readers get a hold of it Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I could keep talking to you for hours here, but you've been so generous. You've answered so many of my questions. And I'm hoping now we can tackle a few questions that the wider world wants to know about Riley Sager. Um, I'm a big fan of the Wired Autocomplete interview series. So I took a look at a couple of the top searches for your name on Google. I'm going to ask you to respond to a few of those top questions, if that's okay with you. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, I'm a little nervous. I've never. I've, no, no, okay. don't be nervous. I think so. The first one is my personal favorite. Does Riley Sager believe in ghosts? Really? That's the top one on Google? That's that's the top what? one. Does Riley Sager believe in ghosts? No, but no? I am frightened of the concept. <laughs> so, oh, good answer. So maybe I do. Like, I... Because I really don't. I, I just can't see how, like, scientifically it's possible. Yeah. Yet the idea really scares me. So a little bit like your Home Before Dark protagonist then, kind of. Some skepticism in there. Yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Next up, um, is Riley Sager Stephen King? <laughs> <laughs> Riley Sager wishes. Riley Is Riley Sager a Stephen King fan? Yes. And what's your favorite Stephen King book? Um, this is, I really loved Misery. Ooh, That's yeah. still one of my favorites. And I should go back and revisit that one. Yeah. But yeah. I Talk was, about an excellent movie adaptation. Yes. Too. Yes. Oh my gosh. But I was all about the Green Mile. When, oh, interesting. When the Green, because he, he did it in installments. So it was mm -hmm. like a little serial. So it was mm -hmm. broken up into six parts. One came out each month. And I would rush out to the bookstore and grab like the first day it came out, like the oh next my installment. Gosh. And for the final installment, I went to a bookstore and I said, okay, I need, you know, part six of the Green Mile. And they said, yeah. That's not comes out until next week. But I knew it. I knew he was wrong. Oh I knew it was gosh, out yeah. that day. And I was like, yeah. no, you're wrong. And then I went to a different bookstore. <laughs> I love it. The commitment, the commitment. But that one, this, that was like watching a great TV show where it wasn't like today where you can binge watch it. Like you had to wait for the next installment. Yeah. And yeah. It had me hooked. So, so probably misery, but I have a fond, fond memory of the Green Mile. Great answer. Okay, our last autocomplete question here. Are Riley Sager books a series? No, they are not. Have you ever considered writing a sequel to any of your books? No, I have not. Interesting. <laughs> I, Interesting. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's weird. Um, I like doing something new every time. Mm -hmm. I like the world building aspect. I like coming up with cool places and new characters. And I just kind of, my, I put my characters through so much. That is true. Definitely. It would be almost cruel to make them go through another round. Yes. But I, I do offer this tantalizing thing, that, which might never happen. But um, when the last time I lied, it's, it's, still, as far as I know, in development as a limited series. Mm -hmm. When I had lunch with one of the producers, she asked, like, well, what if, do you have any ideas if there's a second season? Oh. And I said, I do, actually. And I sort of gave a quick pitch for what a second Ooh. season could look like. Oh my gosh. And I don't share it with anyone because I'm I'm not going to write this. Like I'm telling yeah. you right now, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to write yeah. this book. <laughs> so like it would have to be like turned into a limited series, which 
you know, Hollywood is weird and there's so many hoops to jump through and that might never, ever happen. And then it would have to do well enough to warrant a second season. And then it would be up to like the showrunners and the writers to actually decide to do that idea. But like, that's the only one where I could envision a story continuing beyond what is in the book that I wrote. That is such an amazing teaser. And mark my words, I'm going to mark my calendar in like, I don't know, 30, 40 years. I'm going to follow up with you. And if that if that book has not become a series yet, you're going to tell me what the idea is you. for the second season. I, I promise okay? I will tell you. <laughs> All right. You'll hear from me in about 30 years or so. Okay. <laughs> All right, before we say goodbye here, we're going to close things out with a quick lightning round. Riley, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. What's your favorite scary movie? Scream. What is one thriller you think should be on everyone's to-read pile? Whisper Down the Lane by Clay McLeod Chapman. What book did you love so much that you wish you wrote it yourself? Misery by Stephen King. Mm. Coffee or tea while writing? Coffee. Writing in the morning or writing at night? Afternoon. Ooh, plot twist. I love it. <laughs> Which one of your books would you recommend that readers start with? Ooh, that's a good one. I'm going to say Lock Every Door. Why not? Great recommendation. And what are you reading now? Right now, I'm reading my current manuscript. <laughs> which we all cannot wait to read. So you need to get back to writing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you so much. This was a blast. Any day that I get to talk with Riley is always a great day. So thank you so much, Riley, for your time. There is a lot going on in the world of Riley Sager this summer, so a few highlights for you. The book we delved into in today's episode, The House Across the Lake, is available now in a brand new paperback edition, and it was also recently announced that Netflix has acquired the movie rights, which is very exciting. I cannot wait to watch that movie adaptation. And coming soon is Riley's new thriller, The Only One Left, which will be published on June 20th. The Only One Left is a Lizzie Borden-inspired gothic thriller that follows this home health aide who takes a job caring for a woman believed to have massacred her entire family when she was a teenager. It is totally atmospheric and very chilling. I would highly recommend adding that one to your summer to read list. Also, if you're listening to this episode right when it drops, Riley is going on book tour, so check his website, rileysagerbooks.com, to see if he's coming to a bookstore near you. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review or rating on your preferred podcast platform. Feel free to send me any questions, book recommendation requests, or comments at criminaltypes at prh.com. This show is edited by Clayton Gumbert. Music in this episode from the songs Empty Orchestra, No Reason, and Xenarthrin, written and performed by Shearwater, courtesy of Sub Pop. Criminal Types is a production of the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group and Penguin Random House Media. Thanks for listening. Listening.